And hello to everybody listening on Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Radio Public, Spotify, the tooth fillings in your mouths, wherever you get your shows. This is On the Farm, a show dedicated to covering major and minor league baseball. I'm your host, Matt Kovitz. Joining me as always, Sam Shapiro. A lot to get to this week, but we'll start with some introductions. How are you doing, Sam? I am doing splendid, Matt. How are you? Doing well. This was a very busy week for baseball news. Most of it top-heavy, however. The free agent market is starting to thaw. And from the looks of it, the prognostications of a really bleak winter really haven't come to fruition. The money has been there. It seems like we were hoodwinked, led astray by the owners crying poor. Exactly, Matt. And I think case in point is the Philadelphia Phillies, whom I've kind of taken a few shots at here over John Middleton, the owner's kind of comments about how poorly they've been doing financially, making this big splash uh, to sign Archie Bradley, one of the top relievers on the market. Uh, there are now increasingly loud whispers that JT Realmuto, the creme de la creme of the market, uh, the top catcher available, one of, if not the top position players still available, that he's going to be coming back to Philadelphia when uh, you know, he, he has been asking for the moon, the sun and the stars. And so if that comes to fruition, as uh, uh, as one might think, it's really not going to be a good look for the owners who spent all this time wailing and moaning about how how they were going to have to be cutting costs. Uh, I also apologize if uh, did, did you say fruition in uh, in your in, in, in your little spiel there? Because uh, if so, I apologize for overusing words. Fruition is the word of the day, so it's fine. Fair enough. It's a nice, it's an, it's a nice word. It rolls off the tongue. We will get to the moves you guys may have missed in a bit, but we do have to start with some unfortunate news yet again. There will be another obituary this time for one of baseball's greatest of all time. Hank Aaron passed away on Friday at the age of 86. Certainly has an argument on his side, the best player of his generation, one of the most consistent players of all time. And Sam, I'm sure you'll get into what he meant to fans around the world off the field as well. But just on the field, remarkably consistent. He had at least five wins above replacement from 1955 to 1971. Of course, some believe he is the true home run king with 755. He was beaten by Barry Bonds, but the performance enhancing drug usage of the latter puts the total number into question for some people. If you took those 755 home runs away, Aaron would still have 3,000 hits. So just a consistent force on the field. And baseball is really losing a great one. And that's a sentence that we have said time and time again. Aaron would be the 11th Hall of Famer to pass away in the last calendar year. That's really depressing to think about. But Matt, I couldn't agree more with what you've said. And I think that people of our generation kind of have a skewed view on this just because over the past 10, 15 years, uh, we've been seeing fewer and fewer people reach home run milestones. You know, I remember when I was a younger kid, uh, it used to be fairly commonplace to be seeing guys, you know, join the 500 home run club. And now that's a true rarity. I can't even remember the last time that happened. It might've been like, you know, Miguel Cabrera, but just the fact that I'm, I'm struggling with that just goes to show. And to kind of tie that back to Hank Aaron, the amount of consistency you need to rack up 755 home runs over the course of one man's playing career. That's just, it's just so tough to fathom. And he and, did it. Uh, he did it without ever hitting more than 49 in a season. Yeah. And that's, you know, just like start to finish in a career from uh, when he was a young man who had seen comparatively small amounts of major league pitching to being, you know, towards the end of his career, having, 
you know, all the, you know, physical wear and tear on the body. Also, one thing I want to point out, and, you know, this is obviously something that you and I can never even attempt to be able to speak to, but the amount of mental fortitude it must have taken Hank Aaron uh, to maintain that level of performance because just the amount of, of vitriol and hatred spewed his way, the death threats, you know, nasty, nasty comments. You know, I, I can imagine that at some points he may have even feared for his life just to, uh, because he dared to be a, a black man who was so incredibly good at, at, at what he did. That to me, just that just takes like a, a quality of, of character that is just like so rare to see in many people. Uh, and I think that uh, that deserves as much, if not more, respect from we the fans than anything he accomplished while while standing on on a baseball field. Absolutely. I was reading a wonderful eulogy and it started off with when Aaron was a child and he was hiding under his bed because the Ku Klux Klan were running through his town. That was not that long ago, really in the grand presence of time where he had to deal with this vitriol that you talked about, even when he was playing. Even when the color barrier had been broken, that doesn't mean that it was easy for a player like him just debuting eight years after Jackie Robinson did. I'm sure there were fans that just weren't on board with his existence in the league. And you're right. The mental fortitude is incredibly important. And he surpassed everybody's expectations and became a legend in the process. Yeah, there were still you know, problems with, you know, what, what black players had to face, what they had to deal with, you know, different, you know, structural barriers that, you know, obviously Hank Aaron was able to accomplish a lot, but he had to deal with a lot of, you know, challenges, you know, that white players simply didn't have to. And like, you know, today, even though there have arguably been many strides made and uh, this game is, you know, it's much more inclusive than it was, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, there's still work to be done. And I think that that's, that's something that's been a constant ever since baseball has decided to integrate and try and make it a, you know, a game that that's that's open and available to all. Still a lot more to be done. Really, all that you could say is rest in peace, Hammer and Hank, Henry Aaron. Now for another obituary that we have to get into, and this would have led the show had this news not broken. Don Sutton of the Los Angeles Dodgers, another Hall of Famer, passed away in his sleep at the age of 75 earlier this week. Had a 20 plus year career, a Dodger star, 300 wins, known for his killer afro, known for his appearances on Match Game. I remember seeing him on the Game Show Network as a kid. Another rest in peace here. This goes for Don Sutton. Was recently working with the Atlanta Braves radio network, providing color commentary for some games. So he's been around baseball for a very long time. And another player who is unfortunately passing away that has entered the upper echelon of the Hall of Fame. Yeah, um, I think that... This is, it's obviously not as, as big of a name as Hank Aaron, but at that point in time of the game, you know, the, the Dodgers were one of the, you know, more successful teams. They made a lot of, you know, World Series appearances uh, during, during his tenure with him, you know, in, in the 1970s. And, you know, for, for fans of the game at that time, he was clearly, you know, one of the, one of the key figures at that point. Perhaps a little bit disappointing that he didn't stick around there long enough to get a ring. Um, you know, he's like, if I'm being honest, like he was kind of one of those guys. I just you know, like, oh yeah, Don Sutton, Hall of Famer. You know, he was around for a while. He definitely won a World Series. I was surprised to find out, uh, just in like in preparing for this that he that he didn't. But very long life. You know, glad to see that he was able to stay involved with the game. You know, as you mentioned, as a broadcaster. So yeah, two really big losses, Matt. You know, I think that even though it's been a bummer to have to have these at the top of the show the past few months, you know, at, at least normally we only have one to deal with as opposed to two. 
I know this was just a double feature and we don't mean for Don Sutton to be the Farrah Fawcett to Aaron's Michael Jackson. That's just how the timing worked out. Harsh, but accurate. Not, not at all what we're trying to do. That's just God playing a trick on everybody. Now this next story, arguably the most interesting of the week, aside from the free agent news that we'll get to Mets general manager, Jared Porter hired by Steve Cohen himself. Everything's been on the up and up for uncle Stevie and the New York metropolitans. Well, Something happened. A report from ESPN writers Mina Kimes and Jeff Passan released earlier in the week alleging that Porter sent 62 unsolicited text messages to a reporter from Korea in 2016, where the original nature of the relationship was the reporter reaching out for scoops, and it turned into a much more serious case of sexual harassment. 62 messages, as we said, one of them including, I don't even know what to say, but Jared Porter's thing. And when pressed on that, he said, actually, that's not mine. That was a stock image. So very interesting story here and a lot to talk about. The follow up with it broke on Sunday night. He was fired Monday morning. That is quite the way to jeopardize your career in baseball, isn't it? You know, first of all, I'm a law student, you know, in terms of any like legal work I've done, you know, reading cases like I've seen a lot of like really insane arguments made to like deny accusations. And that has to that has to rank up at the top stock image. You got to be fucking kidding me. (laughs) But yeah, this is it's it's absolutely terrible. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that's, you know, really kind of come into focus uh, in the era of, of Me Too is the the question of power dynamics and how, you know, that's fueling people like Porter to act in predatory ways towards women. And kind of, you know, in a sense, it's like, you know, they're kind of, you know, playing God with other people's, you know, careers, other people's, you know, mental well-being just in order to, you know, get their jollies and, you know, fulfill whatever, you know, sick stuff they've got going on. The fact also that it's like, it's 62 messages straight in a row with, you know, three. And, you know, I think to, to, to me, that's like, that's like pathological. And, you know, obviously not to downplay like, you know, one instance of, you know, harassing behavior is, 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 is too many, but that's just, that's, that's, that's just so many. And you would um, think that this is a pattern behavior. He's not just doing this with one person without a doubt. In his life. A, yeah. There's a, this is just like the first person that's been brave enough and willing to speak up because as this, uh, as, as this reporter mentioned, she's had to leave the industry because of the fallout of, you know, what, what Jared Porter put her through. And you know, not just with, with Porter himself, but baseball is a extremely, it's an extremely masculine industry. You have a lot of guys go into the game afterwards, you know, coming like, you know, straight from the locker room where, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that culture that's, you know, arguably, you know, pretty misogynistic and, you know, very much like a boys club. And it's, you know, just, just an example of some of the unfortunate barriers that have kind of been put up in terms of, you know, getting, you know, more women involved in the game, whether through, through journalism, through, you know, work with, you know, you know, actual teams themselves. You know, there's just, there's one point I saw some, you know, rando make on Twitter that I want to spotlight that on the topic of how this didn't come up in the hiring process, this, this Twitter rando said they were aware of, you know, a CEO of some big company who every time he would interview someone for like, like a corporate exec position, the CEO would go down to the lobby, talk to the receptionist. Cause he would like, he would always make the interview candidates like wait in the lobby for like 10, 15 minutes before seeing them. He'd ask the receptionist, you know, what was this person like? You know, how did they treat you? Were they considerate? Were they, you know, rude? Were they acting inappropriately? And I think that I I, I don't know how widespread that is in HR practices uh, around the sport, around, you know, 
the you know society in general. I'm too young to have much experience, uh, you know, interviewing for jobs. But I think teams have to do a lot better in terms of this because you know this is a new age where people are you know communicating via technology. People are using that as you know part of their personal lives, and there there is a strong possibility that this 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 stuff is going on with other candidates for positions throughout the game. Now there was a press conference that Sandy Alderson underwent with the media, and a reporter asked him how this didn't come up at all during the hiring process. I think that was sort of a gotcha question because it doesn't seem right now like the Mets knew what was happening. That doesn't mean the Cubs didn't. Did something get swept under the rug there? Did something get swept under the rug in Arizona? And an interesting point that Alderson made was that this never came up because he never asked any women involved. He never asked a woman in the organization about their opinion on Porter's hiring. They never asked a reporter. I don't know if that's normal practice to ask the press corps that works with a candidate to see what their reaction is like, but I could easily see that becoming a thing moving forward to avoid situations like this. Because it seems like in a front office, there is the possibility that these sort of personalities were winning at all costs and just absolute ruthlessness can lead itself into strange behaviors like this. Now, I'm not accusing anybody of doing anything like that. But it seems like these personality traits could exist in some capacity. Yeah. And you know, to your earlier point, I think even if a front office doesn't want to bring in people of the media, I guarantee you there were plenty of female employees of the Chicago Cubs and the Arizona Diamondbacks who had interacted with Jared Porter over the years. And so, you know, that I would imagine is like a much uh, that's a much more typical practice, you know reaching out to, to former employers. I mean, we have to list references uh, on our job applications for reasons. So uh, it's very easy to kind of, you know, add in a component of, of, your, of, your, of your background check where you're kind of, you know, asking, you know, has this person behaved inappropriately with regard to women? That's you know, something that could, could even be the case for, you know, other issues. So there are things that can be done. Honestly, just try, just dropping the ball on, on, on the Mets part. And as you said, when you led into this, Matt, we've been hyping up Steve Cohen all winter long here. And while this doesn't fall 100% on him, obviously there are a lot of moving parts within an organization when they're making such a big hire, but uh, this is it's, it's, it's not what you want to see. Definitely not. I do appreciate them acting swiftly and getting rid of him because how are you even going to pretend that you care about a woman's inclusion in the front office if you're going to keep this guy around? So this was done very well, and he was dismissed properly. I don't see him ever getting a job again, but stranger things have happened. Honestly, I would not be shocked if he tries again. I think that there have been uh, a lot of efforts by men in his position over the past few years to try and get like some PR spin doctor and try and move on. I mean, you know, Louis C.K. started doing stand-up comedy again, although his new stuff is just like absolute shit. I would not recommend any of our listeners. He gets mad at cancel culture, right? That's the thing that he's been upset about, even though he... he had absolute reason to be canceled. He gets mad at cancel culture. He gets mad at the, you know, the Parkland shooting survivors. He's just mad because, you know, he got ratted out for doing something absolutely disgusting and, you know, face social shame for it. Like, sorry, that's just the way the, the, the world has worked for thousands of years. Yeah, totally. Hopefully this brings about some change in Major League Baseball's system. Hopefully there were no other guys like this doing strange things. And hats off to Kimes and Passon for releasing this report. I will say just as one final uh, point on this is, you know, I think that it would behoove us all going forward to kind of, you know, do what we can to open ourselves up more to female perspectives when it comes to, you know, 
covering the game because, you know, the baseball media, it's been overwhelmingly male for so many years. Um, and I think that, you know, part of the reason that, you know, something like this can happen and kind of, you know, stay under the rug for so long is because there's you know, not enough attention being paid uh, to female reporters or, or, or bloggers or, or columnists or whatnot who have who have this kind of perspective. So, you know, it might seem a little hypocritical because this is, you know, a, a baseball media venture with two male co-hosts. But I think that that's something I want to try and do going forward. And I think that it's just a good thing if you know we all in general can expand our, our palettes in that way. Very well said, Mr. Shapiro. Now for the on-field news of the week. George Springer, one of the top free agents on the market. We've talked about him for months on end, finally landing at a destination. And he will be north of the border, signing a six-year, $150 million contract with the Toronto Blue Jays. This team's lineup is going to be potent. And honestly, I think this is a much more sustainable core than the one they established in the mid-2010s, led by Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion, because the younger guys on that team were not spectacular. Devin Travis, Ryan Goins, for example, Zeke Carrera. I think this offense can really cement itself going forward, and Springer is only going to help. My question is about the money. Is there a Canada tax of some kind? Because 150 is not what anybody was speculating Springer could get. The Mets offered him 125, and the Blue Jays just pounced on that. It seems like they may have had to pay a bit of a premium to unlock his services. Sure. Um, I think one thing that kind of might have motivated them to go up the ladder is, uh, you know, they were in on DJ LeMayu until the very end. And to kind of add insult to injury, not only did they lose out on him, but he went back to the Yankees, an interdivisional rival. And so seeing the Yankees able to reload by getting arguably their, their best hitter back, you know, that could have, you know, instilled a little bit of, of, of panic. And I don't think that it's necessarily overpaying just because Springer has been one of the more consistently solid hitters in the game ever since coming up with, you know, such impressive power from center field. Uh, I'm not just saying this because I'm a, I'm a uh, Connecticut and Yukon homer, but this is really uh, the, the missing piece for them, I think, because obviously you've got Bo Bichette turning into a potentially all-star caliber shortstop if he can stay healthy. Vlad Jr., a bit of a down year, but there's a lot of optimism. He can regain his form from his, uh, his 2019 debut. You got a uh, Kevin Biggio starting to figure it out at the plate and, you know, Austin Martin coming up the pipeline. They'll have a multitude of ways they can, they can try to fit him in. Uh, and so this is the move that they had to make to get uh, that established star to pair with these baby J's. It's a little bit of a bummer for me to have to, see him in a visitor's uniform at Fenway Park for the next however many years. But Spurrier, not just a great player, but a really solid guy, uh, has done a lot to give back to the community. He's a he's a former stutterer and he's done a ton of charity work in terms of, you know, being there and supporting, you know, kids who are dealing with that currently. He he comes back to to the Yukon program that, you know, helped raise him and is a very uh, a very present guy around around their training complex in the offseason. So I'm just I'm happy to see him get paid. He deserves it more than more than a lot of guys out there. Congratulations to him. Toronto is making for a very interesting AL East. This is to say nothing of guys like Rowdy Telez who broke out or Teoscar Hernandez, who's proving that his power is no joke. This is a lethal, we can't stress it enough, lineup. I want to see what the pitching can do. This is going to be an exciting time to be a Blue Jays fan if we have any of those. I'm not sure if we have north of the border on the farm statistics for who's listening, but I'm sure somebody's there. Kevin Jang. Kevin Jang counts, <laughs> correct. The Blue Jays almost got even better. They were rumored to have a three-year contract lined up with outfielder Michael Brantley. And this was reported by many, enough for the MLB account to tweet and retweet notifications about it. 
Turns out that's not true. Brantley will be returning to the Houston Astros on a two-year pact. So I don't know what happened here. Perhaps there was a hometown discount of some kind to stick around in Houston. That's where Brantley will be. So sorry, Jays, you missed that one. That would have been a hell of a 24 hours for them, though. As for the Astros, after losing one of their top hitters in their lineup, they retain one of the more consistent hitters in their lineup, just ensuring that they will be around the AL West race yet again. Yeah, and I think that's uh, the state of the Astros depth chart before Brantley signed was cause for concern. They were penciling in Chaz McCormick, who has never seen a major league pitch yet uh, as their starting left fielder. And so obviously night and day, if you're bringing Brantley back, losing Springer hurts. But I think that this is kind of what you you, you need to do if you want to uh, remain competitive in the wake of uh, a Mariners team that's on the rise and an A's team that's kind of you know entrenched themselves at the top for the time being. One thing I think in terms of Brantley uh, you know, he's been in the league for close to 10 years, I would imagine. He's, you know, he's older than Springer. Uh, he's closer to retirement than Springer. From that perspective, I can see where living in Texas rather than living north of the border, that might have been a possible cause for concern. Obviously, we can't see into his head, but that's uh, that's, that's something that did go through my mind. And also, like, yeah, it is, you know, it's 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 a different country. It's a little bit of an adjustment. Um, you know, Springer, he's he's a, he's a New England guy. So, you know, there's arguably more similarities than wherever Brantley's from. For some reason, I want to say Florida just because his dad was a major leaguer and a lot of them live in Florida. But anyway, much less of an adjustment uh, from Connecticut winters to Ontario winters culturally as well. So one thing I didn't even get to mention, the Blue Jays don't have a permanent home right now. They might be sticking around into needed when the season starts off in April. They're not going to go back to Buffalo. And Toronto is not a foregone conclusion with how strict the COVID quarantine protocols are up there. So I don't think that instability affected the contract in any way, but it could make sense why they've had, they've been the bridesmaids on a lot of free agents and only one bride so far. Bit of a doomer take here. Maybe, maybe the reason they're so optimistic is because uh, they'll end up way outpacing us uh, in terms of vaccines. You know, that could be. I, I can, I, I, I can imagine a scenario where uh, you know uh, Canada's to the point where like they're uh, they're 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 good to go with vaccinating their pro athletes, while we're just you know scrambling and trying to pick up the pieces because everything is just so completely fucked up. But that's 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 just like my you know complete <laughs> worst case scenario. But morbidly morbidly funny to think about. Absolutely. The Astros opening up a 40 man spot for Brantley trading CNL Perez to the Cincinnati Reds. He got a decent amount of run in the last few seasons. Uh, just a depth guy. Yeah, no, I think that um, even though he only appeared in a handful of games this year, he did show a bit of a step forward uh, in terms of the Reds rotation. They currently have uh, Wade Miley as kind of their their lefty uh, holding down the back end. He, to me, seems like he's a little bit over the hill. This is not the Wade Miley uh, that played for the Arizona Diamondbacks and was, you know, a real cog of that rotation. Uh, I would look at Suno Perez uh, very closely over the course of spring trading to see if he can kind of take that role from the veteran Miley. Now, the San Diego Padres are going to do the Padres thing. They've signed and acquired everybody in their path. A.J. Preller doing what he does re-signing Jerickson Profar to a three-year, $21 million deal. I wouldn't say that he's lived up to his prospect billing. He was the number one overall guy on MLB.com for a handful of years. Nice little deal for Profar. Three years is a lot and not at all what I would have expected. What does this mean for San Diego's roster construction? Because versatility is important. You could tell that they're molding their franchise after the Los Angeles Dodgers and having guys who were able to play multiple positions competently. 
but there just aren't many spots. Hassan Kim, Jake Cronenworth, both occupy spots on this team. Does something have to give? Is there another move in the works or are they just going to stick with this and run guys out four days out of the week? I mean, the problem is what, what moves are there left? I, the only thing I, I don't even know, maybe you shore up the bullpen. You try and go for a more established closer than, than Drew Promarantz. Uh, but then again, you know, trading for relievers, that's a bit of a, a risky preposition, maybe a little less so in Petco park, but the overall fact still remains. Uh, I think that at this point I do kind of agree with just being able to amass multi-positional depth because, you know, Profar, he spent a decent amount of time uh, starting left field for them last year. He's a second baseman by trade. Uh, you could probably throw him at third or, you know, a couple of the other outfield positions. That's a tremendous luxury to be able to have. And last season, uh, I believe was the best at the plate of his career, which isn't saying a ton, but he's just looking like he's another guy who can fill in admirably whenever, whenever they need him to in a pinch. Uh, and of course, this is all assuming that there's going to be no major injuries when we know that Eric Hosmer is a little bit brittle. Tommy Pham has missed uh, a decent amount of time over the past couple of years. Manny Machado's uh, getting a little bit older. So you never know when someone like Hassan Kam or Jerks and Profar might need to to, to, to step into a more quasi everyday role. So, you know, they're just covering their bases and I think it's the right move. I'm not sure if this analogy makes sense, but this deal reminds me of a hockey style contract where someone you wouldn't expect to get multiple years is just hanging around. I never thought Profar would get two, let alone three. The Padres seem to like what they have. It's the equivalent of a third line right winger just getting a five-year deal because they like his sturdy presence in the lineup. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And I yeah. think that's exactly that's exactly what he is. You know, not the superstar that many expect him to be, but, you know, throw jerks and profile on the ice. He'll do just fine. I'm sure he will. Now let's go to a state where ice accumulates in the winter. How's that for a transition? The Minnesota Twins shoring up their rotation, sort of, by agreeing to a one-year pact with Jay Happ. Happ, of course, has played with the last few seasons with the New York Yankees. Looked pretty solid after a rough start to the year. Yankees actually skipped his turn in the rotation a few times. They said that the COVID-related postponements that they had when they had to face the Marlins and the Phillies led to them starting Garrett Cole more often because why wouldn't you do that? Because he was getting uh, seven or eight days rest. You don't need that. As a result, Hap was taken out. He was frustrated, couldn't reach his contract incentives. So it ended quite ugly in the Bronx. This is not a move you have to be totally thrilled about if you're a Twins fan. He is not pushing the envelope. And if you're competing with the White Sox, who have done everything they could to get better, I don't know how this doesn't like I feel like you need to do more is really all I'm saying. So to kind of push back on that a little bit uh, in the same vein as what I was talking about with Sino Perez in terms of, you know, who are you looking to as your lefty in the rotation? Devin Smeltzer was penciled in there before this signing. And well, Devin Smeltzer is a great story. Cancer survivor, you know, great to see him make the major leagues. He doesn't give you good innings. And so I think that if you want to have, you know, that, you know, that left hander to break things up in the rotation, you, know, you need someone who can you know, go out and give you five, six, you know, solid innings a game. And Jay Happ gives me more confidence in that than, than Smeltzer would. I think you know, the only other uh, lefty starter on the 40 man is, is Brandon Waddell, who they claimed off waivers from the Pirates and has 3.1 major league innings to his name. So I think that this is a better move than it looks like on the surface. And also, uh, if you talk about a guy like Michael Pineda, who uh, has really not pitched a lot the past uh, couple of years, didn't get a ton of work this past summer. There needs to be more consistency in this rotation. And Hap is getting up in years. Uh, it's crazy to think of him as 38 years old. I remember uh, when I was a kid seeing him on those Phillies top 10 prospect lists. Um, but I like this. 
I really do. I think on its own, it's fine. He's giving you solid numbers. But if that's the only move they make this winter, you have to be at least a little upset, though, right? Well, I I think that's a... he now takes the crown from Hansel Robles as the, as the <laughs> best move they've made, which, you know, isn't saying much, but uh, it, yeah, it, it does look like it's a bit of a slow burn up there in Minnesota. But as we've said, the market is starting to thaw out. And while uh, they haven't been uh, mentioned a ton uh, with regards to some of the, the big names remaining on the market, who knows? Los Angeles Angels signing a starting pitcher, not one you may think that they've been linked to. But how about this? A one-year, $8 million contract for Jose Quintana. Really a solid starter. The great number two to the great, the great number two, that's the great poop. The great second banana to Chris Sale's primary spot in those mid-2010s White Sox rotations. And then shipped off to the Chicago Cubs for a package that included Eloy Jimenez. So Cubs fans, not really too proud of that one. Didn't really get going. He was nothing more than a mid-rotation guy for the last few seasons, hoping to rebuild back some value in Orange County. I think he can. I've always liked his profile as a lefty who doesn't throw too hard, but has great secondary weapons and control to match. So Matt, you called him the great number two before backtracking that. Uh, that's incorrect. The great number two in in baseball is Chan Ho Park. He of the uh, diarrhea during his How many uh, diarrhea Yankees references debut. did you think that we would have on this show? That's the first I ever would have thought about it. I mean, I <laughs> you know, I just like I, I opened my mouth and it just it ran out. <laughs> oh, that, that's two in a row right there. That's cancellation worthy. That was real bad. I'm I'm sorry to <laughs> Matt and our listeners. Back to more appropriate topics. Jose Quintana represents uh, a really important addition because there's still some questions about when Shohei Otani is going to be working his way back into pitching. If that's something that happens, you know, this year, obviously he really kind of broke out onto the scene with some nice performances his rookie year, but he has not pitched in quite some time, exclusively serving as a DH for the last year while dealing with was, was that Tommy John, Matt? Yeah, Tommy John. And so when it's questionable whether or not you're going to have him available, whether or not you're going to need to you know, go six guys or go four five. Having a nice veteran presence like Quintana really makes a difference. Uh, starting pitching has been a real weakness of the Angels uh, the past few years. There were some you know, personnel changes made on the on the coaching and player development side of things to try and fix that. I think that a potential uh, Quintana bounce back is, 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 is very much on the table here. Regarding your Otani point, Perry Manazian said he expected a breakout from Shohei. I wouldn't expect anything less from the general manager praising his own player, but that's pretty cool to hear. I'd like to see Shohei at peak health and peak performance. I mean, I think that it all starts with having confidence in yourself, and that becomes a lot easier if, you're, if your boss has confidence in you. I will just, we'll just see if the, uh, the elbow holds up. Now, Sam, your Boston Red Sox have been quite busy over the last few days, signing Enrique Hernandez, the Dodgers' everyman, to a multi-year deal. And just a few hours before we went on to record this, locking up Garrett Richards to a one-year $10 million pact. Richards has put up some great seasons, 2014, 2015. The real problem here is an elbow held together by silly putty and scotch tape. It took him a couple of years to get back. He had multiple Tommy John surgeries as well as some biceps tendonitis. Actually, I believe it was at Fenway Park when he tore his patellar tendon while playing for the Angels in 2014. I could be wrong on that, though, but I'm pretty sure it's right. Came back with San Diego, looked pretty good last year. Now the Red Sox get a prove-it guy, 
And I know you've talked about the state of their rotation consistently over the course of the last few weeks. You have to be happy about this. Yeah. For one year and at this price, I'm over the moon. I don't really care if Garrett Richards regains this form uh, back when he was at the top of the Angels rotation. If he can just be a decent number three, number four guy, because we've got uh, we've got Erod back. We've got Ovaldi. We've got uh, Tanner Houck, who uh, I'm really hoping can kind of keep up that uh, incredible pace or at least come close to it. I will say that, uh, you know, one thing that's... Uh, we've mentioned on the show uh, and talking about some of the, the prospects recently has been spin rates. Uh, and that's kind of really the only place he he's been standing out uh, lately in terms of advanced metrics. So MLB trade rumors points out that there's a possibility that the, uh, the Chaim Bloom front office could kind of help him further tap into that and uh, kind of use that to keep his, uh, to keep his career going. I think just in, in general, this is, it's such a market improvement. And I think that even if, you know, he's still that kind of like, middle of the road guy with an ERA and like the low to mid fours, you know, I'll take that over what I've been seeing. And I think that between him, Perez coming back, you know, Matt Andres, uh, able to kind of go both ways starting or, or, or serving as a long man. I think there are options here. And while I don't want them to sit on their laurels, I want them to continue kind of, you know, perusing the market, you know, maybe by the time spring training rolls around, there are always a couple of interesting last minute deals uh, that seemed to come out, but this is a really nice step in the right direction. So I'm I'm pleased about this. And your thoughts on Kike? Yeah, I mean Kike's really had uh, uh, a solid stretch with the Dodgers here. I, I remember uh, seeing him uh, go from the Astros to the Marlins uh, in that trade in 2014. You're like, wow, these teams are both garbage right now. Like, who's really going to amount to much from this deal? But really, the versatility kind of speaks for itself. And while he's not going to be winning any batting titles, you know, I think that he's uh, he, he's someone who I feel comfortable with in a starting lineup. Uh, Michael Chavis had many opportunities to. Uh, cement his place uh, in this lineup, especially with um, my guy Pedroia missing so much time due to injury. He never really took advantage of it. Christian Arroyo, former first rounder, obviously still a bit intriguing, but uh, I would say at, at, at this point, he hasn't proven himself yet. Um, he's going to need a really loud spring and he may need to kind of, you know, start off in a utility role before he can make a case that he's uh, a, a starting caliber player. That said, the elephant in the room is, of course, Jeter Downs, who I've gushed over before starting the season in AAA, most likely should be up during the summer. The thing with him is, though, you know, I don't think that Kike Hernandez is an insurmountable uh, obstacle for him. You know, I think that if Jeter Downs comes up and he starts mashing uh, and adjusting well to being in a major league lineup day in and day out, uh, Kike is a super utility guy still. He's, you know, in, I, I would say probably like a 95th percentile for that particular role. And he would be a, a great credit to this team being able to fill in throughout the diamond as well. 100%. And he's a very underrated lefty masher as well. Platooned with Jock Peterson in left. Sometimes when Peterson was out, Hernandez would just play second base, third base, wherever he could. Certainly a guy who's going to fill out and play different positions very well. Seems like versatility is all the rage these days. Final two moves we'll talk about come from the NL East. The fish get fishier, inking Anthony Bass to a two-year contract. Bass has really reinvented himself struggled, missed the entire 2016 season, came back, did not look great for the Rangers at all. Solid numbers in 2019 with Seattle, solid numbers last year with the Blue Jays. And I think with a two-year pact, he's going to get some chances to get save opportunities down south. Yeah, this was a, a great move by Kim Ng to reel Anthony Bass in. But um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. 
Uh-huh. Anyway, this is a, a very unusual career trajectory for him to kind of settle down once he's kind of reached his mid thirties. But yeah, he has a fairly decent track record in, in safe situations, as you said, over the past couple of years. I would actually argue that he's who I would put in the closures role right now because there's only one other pitcher on their 40 man who's projected to be a reliever who has a safe to their credit from the 2020 season. That's Yimi Garcia, who got one last year. So I think that um, if you want a a steady veteran presence at the back end of the bullpen, at least to start, and if he flounders, then you have options. Oh, damn, that wasn't even intentional. (laughs) They're flowing too easily. Yeah, no, it's just like, you know, it's it's, it's just like going down. You're just doing this for the halibut. (laughs) Um, uh, Anyway, yeah, I think if he starts to fuck up, you have options. And uh, until then, I mean, like they tried to Brandon Kinsler out there for quite a while. He was, you know, a, a veteran short reliever who was not really a lights out closer for much of his career. They seemed to do just fine with him. I think the job is his for the taking. Hasn't pitched in a while, but don't worry. He will get some tuna ups in spring training. Last but not least, Ryan Zimmerman going back to the Washington Nationals. That one wasn't as funny. Zimmerman opted out of the 2020 season. Mr. National will get one last chance. Now, this is something that we talked about in light of Josh Bell signing to play first base. If things go poorly for Bell and he's the guy that he was last year and not the guy he was at the early part of his career, these two can platoon at first base. Otherwise, I would imagine some cameo appearances for Zimmerman at first base. The inclusion of the DH in the National League will help his cause as well. I, I would think that he's going to get one final send off this way because 2020 seemed like it would be it. And then due to safety concerns, he said, I'm not going out like this. Yet this to me just screams farewell tour. And he definitely deserves it. He was really the first star this franchise had a first rounder back when they were still shifting their uh, identity from the, from the Expos to the nationals. He was at the heart of this lineup before they got good, you know, back when they were losing enough games to be drafting uh, Steven Strasburg and, and Bryce Harper. And, you know, the fact that he stuck with them this whole time and saw them all the way to the top, even, you know, sticking with them through the unfortunate playoff losses and, and, and collapses of the earlier 2010s. It's a really nice story. And I know that the nationals aren't one of the more historic franchises in the game. You know, he means a lot to this, you know, very, uh, very pivotal chapter of their story. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see him back as a fan of the game. I would like to see Josh Bell make that trade worth their while and uh, you know, develop into their first baseman of the future. But as you said, if not, I can't think of many better veteran options to come in and kind of spell Bell and get some at-bats. That'll do it for this week. Sam, different show without the minor league prospect lists to go over well, we, we, like we have for the last couple of months. Oh, don't tempt me, Matt. We've, we've got lists of international prospects who've signed. We've got full uh, top 200 from Baseball America for draft prospects. There will be uh, college baseball previews coming out over the course of the next month, month and a half. I can keep you busy with non-major league stuff. Don't try me, man. We will get to all of those. I also want to talk about the disparity in Baseball America and Baseball Prospectus lists that came out over the last few days in their top 100 overall prospects. But that is for another show. We will get to all of that. Sam Shapiro, Matt Kovitz, this was Arm the Farm. Have a great week, everybody. 